Turn with me, please, to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. I want to read from verses 9 through 12, 9 through 12, and then 24 through 32. Let's hear the word of God. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which sets unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I'll come back to that prayer in the sermon. But let's jump now to verse 24. 24. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he, the angel of the covenant, blessed him, Jacob, there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. May God bless the reading of his profound and beautiful word to us this evening. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're approaching a glorious, a beautiful, mysterious, a challenging story, history tonight of Jacob and the angel of the covenant wrestling with each other. Give us insight as we expound this text. Give us experiential reality 
of holy wrestling with the Almighty God. And do not let it be said of us, O Lord, what thou didst have to say of Israel, complaining that no one took hold of thee, but that our lives may not be like Israel's, where they became settled upon their lees and did not know what it means to lay hold of God Almighty. So be with us. Let Jacob's blessing be contagious in our lives tonight. And may we yearn to know that divine blessing more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear church family, Jacob was not a very nice person. His very name means twister, deceiver, and it reveals his conniving character. That cunning character often became a snare to Jacob. You know the story well. In his youth, Jacob, the second-born twin, pressed his firstborn twin Esau for the rights of the firstborn son. And later, he deceived his own father to obtain Esau's blessing, even using the name of God, lying to get it. In the holiest of things, Jacob was a deceiver, a twister. His name was Jacob. He was his name. But Jacob's craftiness backfired on him. He was forced to leave his parents without friends, without possessions, except for a staff and a cruise of oil. He could scarcely have been more poor. He crossed over the Jordan River as he left the land of promise. Behind him, leaving a cursing brother, weeping parents, everything seemed hopeless. Jacob was miserable. He was a homeless man with no future. Astonishingly, God steps in to meet the needs of Jacob. At Bethel, where Jacob stopped for the night, God reveals himself to this unworthy, this hell-worthy Jacob, assuring him that he, the faithful covenant-keeping God, would be with him. And after Jacob travels a long distance, the Lord leads Jacob providentially to his mother's family. He finds a home, finds a job, finds a woman to love, and the Lord blesses his work. Though Jacob's uncle and employer changed his wages 10 times, Jacob just kept prospering. After Jacob served his uncle 20 years, God, who didn't want Jacob to get too comfortable away from the promised land, commands him to return to Canaan. By that time, Jacob's family numbers in the 70s. He's rich with possessions, rich in family. God has pursued him in his wanderings. and God is about to bless him more abundantly. And so Jacob obeys God's command. He packs up and leaves. And when his uncle Laban pursues and overtakes him at Mount Gilead, God wonderfully intervenes again, sovereignly, graciously in Jacob's life. In the hill country of Gilead, in a place called Mahanaim, angels 
reassure Jacob that God would protect him against Laban and against Esau, who was now coming after Jacob with a militia of 400 men. Well, the night before that meeting meeting with Esau, Jacob is driven to his knees in prayer. After sending his wives, his children, everything he owns ahead of him across the Jabbok, Jacob is left alone and God meets with him. The God who met him at Bethel, met him at Maenaim, and now again meets with him at Peniel. But Jacob learned something far deeper, far more, far better at Peniel than he ever learned anywhere else. This meeting would change Jacob forever. It would make him fit to enter the promised land. Now Jacob's wrestling with the Lord, with the angel of the covenant at Peniel, is one of the most mysterious incidents, to be sure, in Scripture. Some ways it's frightening, yet ultimately it is a beautiful, intimate, transforming encounter with Almighty God. It's a sacred place. And though our experience will never match Jacob's in the detail of this story, God in many ways can deal with us similarly today and offers us through Peniel many contagious blessings that Jacob experienced. And tonight, I want to set five of those contagious blessings before you. And particularly focusing, although we'll walk through this history, on verses 29, the second part, and he, God, blessed him, Jacob, there. Well, the first contagious blessing Jacob receives is what I'm calling contagious perseverance. Contagious perseverance. Old Testament believers often gave special names to places of special encounter with God. And they did that for the reason that when generations of children after them would ask, why is this place called, for example, Peniel, they could answer, well, this is where Father Jacob had divine encounter with God. Peniel actually means in Hebrew, the face of God. It's as if Jacob could say, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Or more literally, my soul has been delivered. I have seen God face to face, Genesis 32, 30, and my soul has been delivered. I have known, I have tasted, I have felt the healing touch the redeeming touch of my Savior's hand and my Savior's heart. So I want to ask you a question right away tonight as we plunge into the depth of the story. Do you know what it means to meet God through the pages of his word, to have encounter with Almighty God, where God meets with you and blesses you in his Son? Usually, 
when we have such encounters, special times in our lives, it's when we're all alone. doesn't mean we have to be physically alone. You can feel under a sermon that the preacher falls away and the people fall away, and you, you can have an encounter with God in a sermon. As the young lady who gave a testimony just a moment ago had an encounter with God under a sermon on hell and heaven. Do you know what that means to have a relationship, a real relationship with Almighty God when you're all alone with him? Well, Jacob is all alone. That's how verse 24 begins. Jacob was left alone. But suddenly he was not alone. Suddenly he heard someone approaching in the darkness. His heart must have beat hard as a powerful hand of a nameless assailant laid hold of him. Jacob was no pushover. Jacob was a strong man. Remember, he rolled away a stone that a whole group of men could not move. And we read in verse 24, there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. This is something more than a typical wrestling match that we could witness or, or experience ourselves today. This is a death grapple, a death grapple. Imagine the sweating hands of another human being grabbing your own, pressing his legs against yours. Imagine Jacob gasping and reeling and staggering backwards in the darkness of this night, all alone, but suddenly confronted by this stranger And he's staggering and going forward and backward, resisting his opponent's moves, trying to get a grip on him, putting out all his energy in this fierce match, this fierce battle, this death grapple. Now you young people, young men especially, maybe maybe you love to wrestle, but you know when you wrestle, 10 minutes and you're exhausted. Jacob wrestles all night long. Imagine that. He wrestles. He perseveres in wrestling. He did not want to be strangled or have his back broken. This was a fierce struggle. At first, Jacob didn't realize who he was wrestling with. It looked like a human being. But of course, we know it was a theophany a manifestation of God himself in the form of a human. It was the angel of the covenant, none other than the Lord of glory, the Christ, the creator, the judge, the savior of the world, personified in human form. We know that from Hosea 12, verse four, that he was not just any angel. This is none other than the son of God in a pre-incarnate appearance on earth to his servant, Jacob. So the Messiah set himself against Jacob, the Bible says. It wasn't Jacob that started the wrestling match. It was the Messiah. It wasn't Jacob's idea. The Messiah came to Jacob and took him on. On the borders of the promised land, the God-man challenged Jacob, standing in his way as Jacob approached his inheritance. What a trial. What an overwhelming 
burden. Have you ever wrestled with God in the dark? Have you ever spiritually wrestled with him, I mean? Wrestled in the midst of your disappointment or your experience of betrayal, perhaps of a good friend. Or you may have wrestled with him against pain and illness or in the midst of loss or loneliness or frustration or opposition. Maybe you've suffered severe depression and you've wrestled with God in the dark hours of the night. Maybe you've experienced what our forefathers called the dark night of the soul. At times you struggle with doubt. At times you struggle with temptation. And worry, as we heard this morning, and anxiety, and fear. Maybe you were laying awake 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. You couldn't sleep. You had a sense of futility and emptiness, and you were wrestling with God for his blessing. John Kelvin says of this text, all the children of God in this world are wrestlers with him. What's remarkable at Peniel is that Jacob managed to persevere in this wrestling by the astonishing grace of God. There wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. The lesser, we read in Hebrews 7, 7, must be blessed by the greater at some point in, the, in that night, Jacob certainly realized that he was wrestling with someone who was greater than himself. He began to sense the divine presence in his opponent. So he determined to persevere in the wrestling match, no, no longer just to defend himself, but to win a divine blessing from this angelic messenger of God. So he cries out in verse 26, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. What a beautiful thing if we can come to that place spiritually in the midst of our fears and doubts and anxieties and depressions and mysteries and riddles that we lay hold of God and persevere and say to God, I cannot let thee go except thou bless me. Persevering grace from a God who perseveres with us through a Savior who persevered all the way to Calvary's cross to save us from our sin. Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end so that he would persevere with us to the end and give us persevering grace to persevere with him in response to his preservation and perseverance with us. This is a contagious blessing. Too often I'm afraid when someone asks us to tell us how we got converted. We talk about our conviction of sin. We talk about how we were emptied of our own righteousness. We talk about how we first encountered Jesus Christ and then we stop. But that's just the beginning. Conversion is a miracle. Initial conversion is a miracle. But ongoing persevering conversion is also a miracle. Because God keeps on dealing with us, keeps on chiseling away at us, keeps on sanctifying us. If you're a believer here tonight, 
You yearn, don't you, for persevering grace to continue to lay hold on God, to continue to know him and know him better and better and more and more intimately. That's contagious blessing number one, persevering in wrestling with almighty God. Contagious blessing number two that flows out of this perseverance is contagious prayer, contagious prayer. Alexander White said, prayer is colossal work. Prayer takes all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind, and all our life. I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. This is a man who's driven to prayer in the midst of trial, in the midst of persevering. Perseverance lends itself to crying out to Almighty God when we're speaking of a spiritual relationship with God. These words are not arrogant of Jacob. He's not saying, Lord, if you don't bless me, I'm I'm gonna be angry. No, no. He needs God's blessing. Do you need God's blessing? Can you say, no matter what I do in life, the one thing I need is the blessing of almighty God. You know, when I was first ordained into the ministry, 25 years old, two days later, a 75-year-old minister in town came over to visit me and I asked him, can you tell me from 50 years of your pastoral ministry experience, what does a young minister need? What advice do you have to give me? And that dear old brother looked at me and he said, I've only got one piece of advice to give me. And if you do this, you'll be okay. And I leaned forward. I said, what what is that? One piece of advice. He said, never, never engage in anything in your personal life or in your ministry without asking, Lord, bless me now. Bless me now. You need to do everything. You need to marinate everything in prayer. And you see, that's a contagious blessing. We do so much praying as Christians, but so much of it is prayerless praying, I'm afraid, unless you're very different than me, where you say words, but you don't lay hold of God as you speak. You don't do what the Scottish divines used to say. We've got to pray until we pray through and lay hold of the Almighty. Genuine prayer perseveres with God. It's contagious. It's real. It's more precious than anything else in this world. When we pray to God in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is more valuable, true prayer than all the money of this world. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? When I was nine years old, my dad sat me down one day and said, took some money out of his wallet, actually, put it beside me and said, do you know what a believer has that a believer doesn't have? What's the difference between the two? I always didn't answer my dad. I just said, I always say, I don't know, because my answers were always wrong anyway. And so he looks at me and he goes, well, a believer always has a place to go. And then he says, you see all this money here? 
No amount of money in the world is as valuable as prayer. A place to go. And one day when your mother and I pass away, we won't have much money to leave behind for you. But we'll leave behind for you a treasury of prayers. More valuable than anything else. God leads us in our lives to see who we really are, to bring us to repentance, to move us to prayer, to have real communion with God. God comes to us through his word. Another thing my dad used to say, all relationship with God is a a two-way street. God comes to us through his word, and we go back to God through prayer. It's a two-way communication is required in a real relationship. I will not let thee go. Except thou bless me. Every believer is brought to that point at different points in his spiritual pilgrimage. And often that too is when we're alone, isn't it? Jacob is left alone and he cries out for almighty God. Now, when you're wrestling with someone, you can't stand five feet away, can you? You've got to come to grips with that person. You must take hold of your opponent as he takes hold of you. You must rigorously grapple with each other. In true prayer, you see, we are rigorously, intimately taking hold of eternal God. Isaiah 64, 7 puts it this way. God is complaining. There is none that calleth upon my name that stirreth up himself to take hold of me. He says in another place, command ye me concerning the work of my hands. And Jesus says in another place, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. You see, there is such a thing as a holy, spiritually wrestling with almighty God to pull down divine benediction upon our poor and needy souls and our needy lives. And so what God does is he often brings together, and this is true in your life too, isn't it? If you, if you know this sweet communion with God in the midst of agonizing, persevering, contagious prayer, penitent prayer, you know what it means to have your solitude and the strife of providence come together. Solitude and strife come together. Mysteries, difficulties, problems come together together. Most of our best prayers are circumstantially motivated. And God teaches us through those disappointing, challenging, overwhelming life circumstances to cry out to him for blessing, not just to resolve the problem. The secondary causations, as Calvin would say, must always lead us to the primary causation, which is always God. And so God gives us every trial we have tailor-made for our shoulders to guide us to him so that we learn to wrestle for his divine blessing. And how good it is, how good it is when we need God every day, not just in special encounters. Every day we need him. I think of Martin Luther who said to Philip Melanchthon one day, Philip, I've got so much to do tomorrow, I need to pray an extra hour. You see, prayer was not an appendix to his life, was not a tack on. Prayer was his life. And the circumstances of life drove Luther to cry out in prayer, oh God, bless me now. 
contagious blessing of prayer. Do you know that? Do you know what it means to have real communion with God through prayer? As you can say, I, I, I know these times and places, circumstances, where I wrestled with Almighty God and laid hold of him. And the sweetness of those prayers, even if no circumstances change, the sweetness of just having communion with God is unspeakable. Like William Bridge, the Puritan said, "'Tis a mercy to pray, though I don't receive the mercy prayed for." Bishop Joseph Hall said it even better. He said, I either receive what I prayed for or I receive what I should have prayed for in the first place, which is far better because we often think we know how God should answer us, but God has something far more, far better in mind. So we have here contagious perseverance. We have here contagious prayer, but we also have, thirdly, contagious penitence, penitence or repentance. And what do, you, what do I mean by that? Where do you see repentance in this text? Two places. First of all, in the angel's crippling touch. The angel's crippling touch. When the angel touched Jacob in the hollow of his thigh, his hip was somehow wrenched out of its socket. Was that the moment? that Jacob realized he wasn't wrestling with a mere man? Perhaps so. The late Scottish preacher, Douglas Macmillan, who was a wrestler in his youth, writes this, it would require a very severe blow or twist to dislocate the thigh joint of a fit man during a wrestling match. But this angel merely touched. Didn't break, touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh, and immediately the hip is pushed out of joint. So throughout this this, this wrestling match, the heavenly antagonist is restraining himself, limiting his actions to that of a human. But now it's daybreak, and the angel didn't want Jacob to see him clearly, apparently. And so with a mere touch, he disables Jacob. Jacob is broken. And if you know anything about wrestling, you know that every single throw that a wrestler uses centers around the pivot of his thigh. Injure a wrestler's thigh, he's finished. If you can disable a wrestler in his thigh, you've won the battle. That's what the angel does. He uses his divine power just enough to break Jacob's pride and self-reliance. He touches Jacob in the place where he could break him and bring him to his knees. And Jacob would be reminded of this weakness and lean on God in radical dependency. He is in the grip of God's relentless, crippling grace. And getting your your hip thrown out of joint is not pleasant. It's painful. Jacob knew right then he couldn't win this fight. He was a beaten man. But the amazing thing is that he wouldn't give up. He still persevered. He he needed now, sensing this, this man was a divine encounter, 
He clung more tightly than ever to the angel of the covenant, even as the angel clung tightly to him. Now, if you're injured in a wrestling match, what do you do? You've got no choice but just to wrap your arms around your opponent and throw your dead weight on him and hope for the best. That's what Jacob does here. I will not let thee go. He throws his weight on the angel of the covenant, except thou bless me. So throughout this wrestling match, it appears as two phases here. In the first phase, an angel who looked like a man strove with Jacob, and Jacob did not get the victory. But in the second phase, Jacob took the initiative in the struggle and in one sense gained the victory by his own brokenness being thrown upon the seeming opponent. And what I'm saying to you tonight is this is the mighty paradox of grace. After Jacob is wounded and bruised and broken, he keeps striving with God until he gets the victory. Not in his own strength or by his own ingenuity or by his own scheming. That's, that's the old Jacob. That's how he got Got the victory all the time in the past. The secret of his victory now lies in his helplessness and his desperate dependence on God, clinging to God for divine benediction. Now, if you translate that into your own life, I'm hoping it will shed some light on the greatest burdens of your life at this moment. Is it possible that God is teaching you in your brokenness, in the midst of life's greatest trials, that you embrace some of the failures you have experienced by throwing your weight upon God and saying, even more than the resolution of these trials, Lord, I need thee. It's like we heard this morning about the fear of God. If you fear God, you need not fear man. The fear of God is actually valuing the smiles of God more than the smiles of men and valuing the frowns of God more than the frowns of men. And if you think you are all washed up because your failures failures have humiliated you and brought you down, consider perhaps that God is crippling you because he couldn't move you to repentance any other way. God breaks us to heal us, to bind us up, to use us just as he did Simon Peter. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. I can use you now, Peter, now that you've been broken and restored. I will bless you now, Peter, after I've touched the hollow of your thigh. And so Jacob clung to the angel of the covenant, who then said, interestingly, let me go for the day breaketh. Jacob says, no, I can't let thee go, except thou bless me. He knew now, you see, his opponent was God. He knew no man could bless him. He wasn't asking for a human blessing. He was asking for a divine blessing. He knew that now. He clung to God because he knew now. Finally, Jacob knew now that without God, he could do nothing. God had won the victory in this wrestling match. But so had Jacob, for Jacob could not let God go. When Jacob is at his weakest, he's at his strongest. For God's strength is made perfect in his weakness. The man that God would not let go became the man 
who would not let God go. In our theology, that's what we call grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. Because God in Christ would not let us go, suffered and died in our place, was seemingly defeated. But he, Jesus, gained the victory on the cross as he crushed the head of the serpent who was biting his heel. And through that Christ, when we are broken and come to God and cannot live without him, we are actually getting the victory. When I am weak, then am I strong. And so finally, Jacob really wins. All his former wins were fake wins. They were deceiving wins. They were twisting wins. They were deceitful. But now he really loses And yet he really wins at the same time. He wins by losing. And God wins. This is the mystery of this wrestling match. It's a win-win wrestling match. Jacob has power through weakness and prevails. God has power through strength and prevails. His strength is made perfect in weakness. This is not a tie. This is a double win. This is the way of grace. Jacob wins by being blessed. God wins by blessing and by being the blesser and being the blessing in Christ Jesus and gets glory to himself throughout. This is the beauty of penitence, the beauty of gracious penitence that ends in divine benediction. This is contagious. Don't you want that? I hope you do in all your brokenness, in all your burdens, that God goes beyond the burden itself and brings you into that place where you surrender all to him. And you win by losing. And yet you win by winning because you have communion with God, which is far more than everything you lost. Penitence, contagious penitence. But also, secondly, there's contagious penitence here that we can see in Jacob's new name. Jacob's new name. Verse 27, the angel says to Jacob, what is your name? What is your name? Why in the world does the angel say that? This is the angel of the covenant. Obviously, he knows Jacob's name. Well, Jacob had just asked for the angel's blessing. God's way of blessing often begins with repentance, and repentance often begins with probing questions such as, who are you? What is your name? Why is that so significant? Well, go back with me 20 years. Jacob is a young man. He's standing beside his father's bed. Isaac says, in his blindness, who are you? What is your name? Father, my name is Esau. Esau, the strong masculine guy, the hunter. But he did it to get the blessing. He 
wanted the blessing for himself, so he was conniving his way to get the blessing. Here, God gives him the blessing by letting him finally be who he really is. Jacob answers in his brokenness. Jacob, I'm, I'm twister. I'm deceiver. I'm failure. I'm the conniver. I'm a sinner. Jacob becomes who he really is. He finally admits it. He said to his father, I'm Esau. Esau, thy firstborn. You see, God would not let Jacob enter the promised land as Jacob the deceiver. who had been making clever schemes, dividing up his family and his property, preparing enormous bribes for his brother. Jacob had to come clean. Jacob was doing all he could to save himself from the anger of his avenging brother. But at the same time, this was the conflict going on inside of Jacob between the old man and the new man. He was pouring out his fears to God in the longest prayer recorded in the book of Genesis. I read that prayer to you from verses 9 through 12. When he's all alone with God, this scheming man becomes humble and empty and broken. And what does he do now? He pleads on God's covenant in his prayer, verses 9 through 12. He pleads on God's command. He pleads on God's promise. He pleads on God's mercy. He pleads on God's deliverance. He pleads on God's faithfulness. Everything is in God. That's what happens when you become who you really are before God. You just need God for everything. Everything. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said experientially, that becomes real and true for a believer. God would not let Jacob enter the promised land any other way. Jacob loses all his clever strategies. He comes straight with God. He says, I am Jacob. And the only way, the only way for me to be blessed is if you do it, Lord. I cannot do it. I have no more schemes. My plans are done. There's no more trickery trickery left in me. You see, God deals with us in a real way. God makes us come clean. God brings us to repentance. This is contagious repentance. God will not bless us with spiritual liberty as long as we have unconfessed sin in our lives. But what he does is he brings us to confession. And then he blesses us. He blesses us. And he blessed him there. He blessed him there where Jacob became Jacob. And he says, thy name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And he blessed him there. First time in his life, perhaps, Jacob obtained a clean, untarnished promise that he got directly from the hand of God and not through his own efforts. Although he was blessed at Bethel, he was blessed at Maonaim, But now Jacob comes clean with God. There's something deeper going on here. God makes him Israel, a prince with God. God's going to use him now. God's going to untwist this twister to make him useful for the gospel. Esau. Esau once said about Jacob, is he not rightly, Genesis 27, 36, is he not rightly named Jacob? 
For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he's taken away my blessing. But this blessing is not a stolen blessing. This is a gift blessing from almighty God. For God sovereignly, amazingly, surprisingly, graciously loved Jacob from eternity past. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, Romans 9, 11 through 13, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, that is Rebekah, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved. But Esau have I hid it. So Esau might be coming after Jacob with 400 men, but Hosea 2 verse 9 says, God had made a covenant to protect Jacob, the unworthy supplanter, and was betrothed unto him forever. This is the eternal, uncommitted, contagious love of God. He is the secret of Jacob's name change, his personal transformation, his contagiousness is now a broken and a penitent man. And isn't it true when you look back in your life, isn't it true? And you look at what, how God has dealt with you and broken you and restored you and healed you and brought you to rest in Christ. Where do you give the credit? Nothing of you. It's all of grace. He blessed him there. And so Jacob receives a fourth contagious blessing here. We call it contagious power. Thy name shall be no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. Jacob realizes now that the greatest terror in his life is not Esau. He needs God. He's filled with that holy fear we heard about so wonderfully this morning from Dr. Reeves. Jacob is overcoming the angel by weeping and making supplications over him, even as he loses the battle, he wins the battle, as I said. He overcomes the angel only after he's broken and begged for mercy, and the angel gives him the victory. What a mystery this is. But we get the victory in Christ, in Christ, who earned the victory on our behalf. So what does this teach us? This teaches us that in every battle of life, in every trial, in every dark night of the soul, in every need, think of your greatest need in life right now. Your greatest need is not your greatest need. Your greatest need is to do business with God. Your greatest need is to end in the primary causation of your greatest need, which is God. John Calvin puts it so beautifully in these words. He says, whenever we are tried, our business is truly with God. See, Calvin said, don't look to secondary causations. God has a sovereign purpose to form you for himself, to deepen you, to mature you spiritually in your trials. He's always the primary causation. And in him, cry out for his blessing in the midst of your impossibilities. God is what matters. Your relationship with God is what matters more than anything else. Without the blessing of God, you can do nothing. And you see, God doesn't force himself upon us. 
But what he does do is he takes trials and he uses them to drive us to great need. He touches the sore spots in our life. He touches our hips, as it were, so they're out of joint. Calvin goes on to say, he having challenged us in the contest of life, at the same time furnishes us with a means of resistance so that he both fights against us and for us at the same time. For while he lightly opposes us, he supplies invincible strength whereby we overcome through his grace. What a mystery. And yet it's experientially true, isn't it? God lightly, compared to what we deserve, God lightly opposes us or seems to. He merely puts forth his finger and we are broken. But in that touch, he also offers us invincible strength and power to cling to him for he is really on our side to begin with. That's why we can look back as Christians on our whole life and look at all our trials, even our very hard trials, even our trials of rejection, incredibly painful rejection. And we can look at what we are now. And we don't say it proudly, but we say it humbly. I've needed every trial I've ever received in my life to break me and make me willing to be clay in the hand of my divine potter to serve my God. Where would you be in your life without trials? Where would you be? be a spoiled brat. That's what you'd be. And so would I. I'd be the first. But God breaks us to remake us and to give us power because now we love Christ. Now we want to serve him. Now we want to lay down our lives for him. That's how Hugh Latimer could say what he said to the king this morning in the sermon. God's power will prevail in his children, so that they will prevail with him. And so in Christ, we receive a new name. In Christ, we're personally transformed. In Christ, we overcome sin through the anointing of his spirit. In Christ, we overcome our enemies. In Christ, we overcome past sins, present sins, future sins. In Christ, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Because of Christ, no person, no enemy, no Esau has the power to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. So this name change, the power reflected in this name change, is not a physical power. It's not a mental power or magical power or meritorious power. It's the power that flows out of God's mercy through Jesus Christ and God's promises in Christ. Jesus Christ, the angel of the covenant, wrestles and prevails over all the powers of hell for all the Jacobs who his father has given him from eternity past. So he became a worm and no man in Gethsemane and Gabbatha and Golgotha as he took his place took the place of sinful Jacobs like you and me to deliver us from our sin. This power flows out of Jesus Christ who's resurrected from the dead, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for you every single second. Hebrews 7.25, he ever lives to intercede for us. And out of that power, you see, he rescues his Jacobs, you and me, 
from the pit of condemnation and empowers us so that we, like Israel, might be used to win others to Christ, saying to them, if God can do this for me, he can certainly do it for you. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And if he can do it for the chief, he can do it for those who are less chief. He can do it for you. You have power with God when you prevail in Jesus Christ. And that contagious power, you see, is through dependency on the Spirit's grace so that we're acutely aware of our weakness and sin, that we lean upon Christ entirely for our strength and salvation and exercise simple childlike faith in Christ. Isaiah 33, 23 says, the lame take the prey. John 14, 1 says, you believe in God, believe also in me. It's when we rest in Christ alone that we get strength out of him who was broken to convey strength to us and we have power with God. And then we want to, we want to, with all that is within us, pattern our lives after Christ. We want to get up every morning and say, Lord, make me useful and fruitful for thee today. Let me be salt in the earth and light on the hill for thy glory today. Let me, by my godly conversation, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, gain others for Christ today. Your name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have power with God and with men, and with men. But to be blessed by God is a great thing, a great thing. Too often today, we speak about being blessed by God uh, quite lightly. So I was blessed tonight. I was blessed blessed today. Well, maybe to some degree. But to be blessed by God is an amazing, transforming, progressive experience of beholding the beauty of God in Christ all our lifetime. To be blessed by God is to experience the blessing of John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. And God will give us those crippling touches. He'll give us the kind of pain and suffering we need. He'll tailor make our trials to such a, in such a way that we will be blessed. And so verse 31 puts it so beautifully as we come near the close now of this beautiful text. And Jacob passed over Peniel and the sun rose upon him and he halted upon his thigh. Jacob left the place of wrestling. He left this mountaintop, or you might say valley, of communion with God. He had to return to the road of daily, ordinary spiritual pilgrimage. He left Peniel. We can't be in this special experience of God every moment of our lives. It's just not possible here. It will will happen in heaven one day. But the sun rose upon him. Have you ever thought about this picture? There's Jacob walking away. He's he's halting. He's halting on his thigh. But the sun rose upon him. What a beautiful picture. Sunrise of the morning. A sunrise is a beautiful, a powerful thing, isn't it? A sunrise suggests three things. It suggests promise, a new day. Here's a man who's been transformed afresh and deeper than ever 
in, in a new day, by the grace of God, the Son of Righteousness is rising with healing in his wings. It suggests peace. Sunrise is a very peaceful thing. When we walk, even limping upon our thigh, but we're looking to Christ. We have peace that passes all understanding. And the sunrise is a pure thing. It suggests purity. The sunrise, it seems like the sun just comes and washes everything clean. And so when we walk, even limping, but walk in the purity of Christ, we experience a, pu- a purity that you can't put into words. We are clean. We are clean through and through. This is contagious. Contagious power produces beautiful promises, beautiful peace, beautiful purity, so that we can go forward. To experience the last contagious blessing, I'm calling it contagious price. Contagious price. He halted upon his thigh. There was a permanent mark on Jacob. Our brokenness in this life, yes, it serves our blessing, but the severe mercy of God leaves its mark upon us. For Jacob, it was some physical pain. For us, it may be some spiritual pain. But the pain that we experience as Christians, the pain of indwelling sin, the pain of our disappointments, makes us go forward looking to Jesus. He's halting, but he's going forward, you see. That's the price we pay, the price we pay. No matter how sore you are, you will receive blessing and power when you, by the grace of God, submit to his living touch. So let's pray. Pray for grace to thank God for injuring us in order to bring us to him so that the thorn in our flesh, which maybe is still with us, just makes us more dependent on him, brings us closer to him, helps us to make more progress by being more dependent on him. Ask for these five contagious blessings. Perseverance, prayer, penitence, power, and price. And don't be content when everything is just going your way. But only be content when things are going God's way, God's way. Don't try to manipulate God. Don't be a deceiver. Don't be a Jacob. Be an Israel. Get your strength from the living God. Now I close with this thought. If you think that God possibly won't save you, I say to you, don't ask the question, why me? Ask the question, why not me? Why not me? I'm a sinner. He comes to save sinners. He comes to save Jacob's, Jacob's. And I counted in the Bible the number of times that God calls himself the God of Jacob. It's 20 times, 20 times. His love for Jacob flows throughout his word. He says, happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help. Be happy is that people whose God is the Lord. If you're not in Jesus Christ, if he's not number one in your life, if he's not all and in all for you, I say to you tonight, go to him and say, I'm Jacob. 
Have mercy upon me. I won't let you go till you bless me. And you repent at his feet like that. Cast yourself upon him by the grace of the Holy Spirit. He will bless you there. So let the grace of God for unworthy sinners move you to ask, to seek, to knock at God's throne of grace for the grace that Jacob experienced at Peniel. God bless you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank thee so much for the contagious blessing that was given to Jacob in this fivefold way, which really is one way, namely Jesus, who suffered and died in our place so that we could be abundantly blessed with peace that passes understanding and be strong in the Lord. There'd be no more called Jacob, but Israel, to have strength with God and with men. Oh God, transform us. Give us that divine, gracious strength and help us to live out of our own little peniles day by day, looking to thee, wrestling with thee for thy benediction upon us. And let that benediction move us to be servants of the almighty God, to live for thee, in thee, with thee, unto thee, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.